This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at NPR.org. President Biden is in Israel today, just a day after an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. This morning, when I drove into the hospital, I noted how full the hospital courtyard was with families who had sought refuge inside the hospital, thinking that it would be a safe haven. It's these very same families who are now either dead or critically wounded as a result of this attack. That was Doctors Without Borders surgeon Ghassan Abu Sita speaking from the hospital after the explosion. Palestinian authorities say the blast killed hundreds of people. Israel and Hamas have been trading blame for the blast. NPR and other news organizations have not independently verified who is responsible. What does Biden's visit mean for the U.S.'s role in the region? What does this escalation mean for where the war goes from here? Later in the show, we talk about what the laws of war mean in this conflict between Israel and Hamas. But first, we start with an update on how Palestinians in Gaza are grappling with the effects of the hospital attack. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot more ahead. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This message comes from Wondery. For a masterclass on innovation and creativity, listen to How I Built This, where host Guy Raz talks to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. Listen to How I Built This, early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Joining me now for an update on the Gaza hospital attack is Chris Whitman. He's head of office for Israel-Palestine at Medico International. That's an aid in human rights group. And he joins us from Jerusalem. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on, Jen. Also with us is Joyce Karam, senior news editor at El Monitor. That's an independent news website focused on reporting from and about the Middle East. She also writes the China Middle East newsletter. Joyce, welcome back. Great to be with you, Jen. So shocking images from Gaza on Tuesday night. The Palestinian Health Ministry says hundreds were killed in the attack on the Al-Akhli Hospital in Gaza City. The facility is operated by the Anglican Church, and its services include a free community clinic, care for undernourished children, a surgery center, and emergency care. Joyce, as of now, what do we know about that attack? 
Well, uh, we know it's uh, devastating. We know hundreds uh, are dead. The figure was around 500 yesterday, but Hamas officials have adjusted now to say 200 to uh, 300. Uh, there is, uh, as we've mentioned, uh, claim and counterclaim as who's responsible for uh, uh, for the attack. Uh, the Israeli military said uh, uh, this morning they've wiretapped a conversation between Hamas uh, uh, members, uh, where one Hamas official uh, says it was caused by uh, uh, a rocket fire from Islamic uh, Jihad. That's the that's the Israeli uh, uh, narrative. Uh, Hamas still uh, insists this was an Israeli uh, airstrike. The situation on the ground is uh, pretty devastating and miserable. I uh, was speaking uh, to someone uh, to someone there just uh, last night. It's the, the 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 parking area where the where the attack, where the strike, explosion, whatever we want to call it, happened. Is just the bodies uh, scattered, uh, electricity outage, ambulances don't know where to even take the 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 wounded because the hospitals are already over capacity and this was one of um, uh, few operational hospitals in Gaza uh, City. We're seeing from humanitarian organizations that, you know, Gazans are running out of body bags, uh, clean water. So this just adds uh, to to the devastation uh, and the uh, human suffering in the in the enclave. Chris, what are you hearing from your contacts about the refugee situation in Gaza? Well, I mean, in general, I'm actually in contact with people who are uh, in shelters. Um, many of our partners and the employees of our partners are located in shelters, mostly in and around Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip. Um, and what we find is that there's an absolute overcapacity, that there is little to no water, there is no little to no electricity, there's no food. So you have people who, on 24 hours' notice, were forced to um, to evacuate the northern half of the Gaza Strip and to move down. 1.1 million people were told to move, and of that, the UN estimates about five to six hundred thousand of them heeded the call. And in that process, you, we basically took one of the dense, most densely populated places on Earth, and we cut it in half with the same number of people. So we have about 400,000 people who are still in Gaza, again, including partners and friends of mine. Um, but most people have relocated to the south, um, and they're living in extremely um, disastrous conditions, uh, places that if are not, who do not really receive humanitarian aid in the coming days will be experiencing um, disease that we only heard of in the Oregon Trail uh, as kids playing that game. Uh, typhoid, cholera, uh, dysentery, this will easily be spreading through Gaza if a humanitarian uh, assistance is not allowed to be in in the coming days. President Biden reaffirmed U.S. support for Israel's war in Gaza during talks with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday. Biden also said this. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we've got, a lot, we've got to overcome a lot of things. And it also means encouraging life-saving uh, capacity to help the Palestinians who are innocent caught in the middle of this. 
Now, the meeting comes the day after the cancellation of a summit that was due to be held in Amman, Jordan. Here's Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Given this massacre that took place tonight and having the I decided to stop my visit and to go back home so that I can be with my people during this painful situation and hard times. Joyce, given the competing narratives around this attack on the hospital and now the cancellation of the summit to be held in Amman, Jordan, what does this mean for the U.S.'s diplomatic role in the region right now? Well, it's a big uh, setback. Uh, This is a gamble by the White House, by President uh, uh, Biden to... to embrace uh, Israel, to to be seen uh, on the Israeli uh, side of this, uh, and that's you know uh, creating a backlash in the in the Arab world. Uh, the Jordanians have said that the decision is collective to to push uh, to push the summit to postpone it uh, for many reasons: security, there is protests uh, ongoing, Jen, as we know, in Jordan and Lebanon across the region, uh, but also there is an element of liability here. Uh, Many of the uh, Arab allies of uh, of Washington feel uh, weakened uh, by by what's happening, and uh, they don't want to be seen uh, right now with with the U.S. president, given Washington's uh, embrace of uh, of Israel. So this is a very tough situation for uh, for the administration. Uh, Remember, just Two weeks ago, we were talking about the prospects of a uh, Saudi-Israel normalization and hopes of peace in in the region. This this story has completely changed now. We've seen even uh, governments that uh, have signed peace accords with Israel, Egypt, uh, Jordan and the United Arab Emirates uh, go out quickly uh, last night and uh, accuse Israel of the uh, of the blast and condemn uh, condemn uh, Israel uh, for what happened. So this is a very uh, volatile situation for the administration. One where they're trying to balance their interests. Um, support Israel. At the same time, uh, what Biden is likely to do through this visit is get some sort of humanitarian uh, breakthrough, humanitarian access, short humanitarian truce to uh, to just uh, alleviate the, the, the suffering while uh, being in the same room and embracing uh, Netanyahu. Chris, you've given us a sense of the conditions um, of people who have been displaced in Gaza, the immediate needs of water and food, shelter, power. In talking to your sources, how hopeful are you that a, a corridor for humanitarian aid will open soon enough? I mean, I think the biggest concern that people have, other than the immediate necessity of having drinking water, which Gazans currently do not, Right now, they're averaging three liters per person per day. Just to put this in context, uh, the average American uses about 300 liters per person per day for cooking, for cleaning, for drinking. Gazans have three. So despite that fact that there's a very real chance that people could be dying of dehydration, Palestinians are very fearful of any Western-backed plan for humanitarian aid because they feel like this will that they won't just receive the humanitarian aid, 
that they're going to be pushed to temporarily, and I put that in air quotes, sorry, this is radio, um, that they're going to be pushed into the Sinai Desert. And uh, ask any Palestinian, they grew up with their stories of their grandparents who were temporarily located uh, in one place or another and never allowed back. So that's their biggest fear right now. And they're willing to sacrifice living in these unbearable conditions just to get around the possibility of potentially being temporarily located. Because I know that Israel won't let them back without massive Western pressure. And we know that Western pressure is not going to happen on Israel in this current climate or really in most climates. So briefly, Chris, what does this mean for the work of your organization in the the weeks ahead? Uh, I mean, we currently just started to, I just approved two humanitarian projects, uh, both for the humanitarian aid once that corridor is open, but more importantly, potentially, um, for a cash assistance program to help our partners in Khan Yunus who are dealing with this massive influx, a tripling of the population of Khan Yunus in a matter of 24 hours, to provide cash assistance for the limited supplies that are left uh, according to the WHO, food supplies will be gone in Gaza within seven days. Um, it, it, things like mattresses, bedding, clothing are expected to are either if they're not already gone, are expected to be gone in the coming two to three days. So we're providing as much needed cash assistance to uh, help people be able to make these purchases to at least make uh, hopefully this what ends up being a short time period at least a little bit better, and to allow them to actually have access to uh, food. Uh, maybe some water, and potentially uh, some other supplies. That's Chris Whitman in Jerusalem. He's head of office for Israel-Palestine at Medical International, an aid and human rights group. Chris, thank you for speaking with us. Let's head to a quick break. Coming up, we discuss the laws of war and how they apply in this conflict. Back in just a moment. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. If you're a business owner, you know these sounds mean sales. And from the sound of it, Your business is growing. Whether you're fulfilling orders from your home office or warehouse, Stamps.com helps you stress less about mailing and shipping and spend more time doing what you love most. Listening to ASMR. I mean, growing your business. But as you grow, so does the need for efficiency. Stamps.com simplifies your shipping and mailing process. Import orders from wherever you sell online. Find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times. Instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers. And buy shipping and mailing supplies when you run low. Save time and money on mailing and shipping. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. On the TED Radio Hour... 
In the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward? And what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Sean McFate He's author of The New Rules of War, How America Can Win Against Russia, China, and Other Threats. He's also a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He served as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army and as a mercenary. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Joyce, there are some 200 Israeli and other foreign nationals, including 12 Americans, being held hostage in Gaza right now. What's the latest on their status and negotiations for their release? Uh, So we're seeing uh, both Qatar uh, uh, and Egypt uh, play a back channel role in in uh, some form of release, at least release the women and children that are held uh, hostage. Uh, on uh, on Tuesday, we've heard from uh, the Turkish uh, foreign ministry that they're they've they're in touch with Hamas, and there might be some hope that they would release uh, uh, third uh, country. Uh, hostages that is not uh, Israeli. So we're waiting to see. There is some hope that uh, we could see a breakthrough before uh, a ground uh, invasion with President Biden in the region, uh, with uh, diplomacy ticking up. Uh, this file is is expected to, uh, uh, you know, to take uh, more attention. Uh, but uh, as of this moment, there is there is just uh, they're, they're still held, uh, believed to be in uh, in. Gaza, but uh, yeah, there hasn't been any agreement, any sort of deal between uh, between these negotiators on uh, Israel releasing uh, prisoners that Hamas is asking for. Uh, we've read, I've seen numbers; they want uh, 30, uh, 30 or something prisoners uh, out, mostly Palestinian women uh, in in Israeli uh, prisons, in return for releasing uh, some of their uh, hostages. Uh, and the Hamas, they put the number of hostages at 255. So uh, the Israelis said 199. So even uh, even on the number of those taken, we still don't uh, don't have a verified uh, uh, number yet. I want to turn to a term we've been hearing quite a bit in the in the past several days, and that's laws of war. In, in remarks on October 10th at the White House, President Biden made reference to the, quote, laws of war. Sean, what are these laws of war and who created them? So the laws of war, sometimes known as the laws of armed conflict, conflict or international humanitarian law, they come from a group of treaties in the 20th century, like the Hague Convention, the Geneva Convention, the Rome Statute, which creates the International Criminal Court. And these are sort of what nations agree to to mitigate human suffering during war. And they involve things like what the, our military calls rules of engagement. You're not allowed to shoot innocent civilians. You're not allowed to blow up hospitals, um, things like this. And Hamas's attack um, last week was a clear violation of multiple laws of war. When we talk about laws of war, you say that they're created to mitigate human suffering. But how does that bump up against the reality that when engaged in a war, when engaged in conflict, there will be civilians harmed? 
Right. So the laws of armed conflict recognize that sometimes there are, you know, are innocent civilians harmed, um, and this is what it's called collateral damage. Right, um, and the question is always how much is too much collateral damage. But what's not allowed is deliberately targeting civilians the way, say, Russia has done in the war in Ukraine, or Hamas has done when they, you know, massacred civilians when they broke out of Gaza. That is strictly forbidden. Does restricting humanitarian aid like food, fuel, electricity? As we know, uh, Israel cut off the water supply and electricity to Gaza. Does that fall under a violation of the rules of war? Many say yes. They would say basically siege warfare that injures, you know, bystanders, civilians, starves them to death um, is uh, a war atrocity. So um, that is seen as a violation of the war, laws of war. Some international observers, including the United Nations, view Israel as a force occupying Gaza. They say this is supported by the fact that Israel controls Gaza's borders yeah. and airspace. It supplies most of its electricity. In this case, what are the obligations of the Israeli Defense Forces and Hamas under international humanitarian law? Well, this is a constant question, especially with Israel. So Israel, like the United States and like Russia, are not signatories, for example, to the International Criminal Court. Uh, they don't recognize that jurisdiction. Um, also, Israel, just like the United States following 9-11, uh, believes that its self-defense trumps all other uh, obligations and duties to international humanitarian law. Uh, and then there's a lot of other concerns out there, not just in Israel, but you know, how relevant are the laws of armed conflict in the 21st century? I want to come to you, Joyce, because we should also note that the U.S. doesn't recognize the uh, oversight of the ICC either. And, and Joyce, in your reporting, what are you finding about how that complicates, for instance, questions of, of how the U.S. can play a role in diplomacy? Uh, oh, for sure. I mean, you know, when it comes to the Middle East, uh, there is little observance to uh, the international humanitarian laws. We've seen, you know, across the Syrian war, Russia bombardment of uh, hospitals there, Yemen. It, it, it just seems the Middle East is, is just rampant with, uh, with war uh, atrocities that uh, go without ac accountability. In this case, in in Gaza, uh, the siege, the collective punishment. I agree with uh, uh, with our guest that uh, yes, of course, what Hamas did is is a huge war uh, atrocity. Uh, but also the collective punishment, the siege of Gaza, uh, millions can don't have access to uh, to clean water. That's also a question of uh, the, of uh, criminal. Uh, intent. So, uh, so that's one uh, for uh, for the U.S. Now, what it can focus on is at least open the Rafah crossing, the the one passage that's available out of um, uh, out of Gaza uh, into Egypt. That's important to get foreign national out, uh, including uh, nearly six hundred Americans, British nationals, other, but also to get humanitarian aid in that's been just waiting uh, at the border. Uh, this now is waiting for an Egypt-Israel agreement uh, has not been uh, reached yet. So we're hoping that President Biden can at least manage this one issue uh, while there uh, and just offer relief for, uh, you know, uh, millions in, in Gaza. 
Coming up, we discuss what international law says about the security of hospitals and other protected sites in wartime. Stay with us. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini-expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. With more and more information coming at you all day every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This Newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Let's turn back to Al-Akhli Hospital. It's one of 20 hospitals that Israeli officials say they sent evacuation orders to. Sean, what does international law say about the security of hospitals in wartime or schools, places where people might seek shelter? So hospitals, schools, temples, churches, some historic sites are protected under international law. It is forbidden to target them. But also, you know, terrorists, insurgents, and others have also exploited this. Uh, They set up their headquarters in schools, in hospitals. Uh, They use ambulances to travel around war zones, knowing that a state actor uh, would be more reluctant to target them that way. Uh, It's like using human shields, also strictly forbidden. But modern combatants today exploit the laws of armed conflict. but if, the, if Israel deliberately targeted the hospital, it would be multiple war atrocities. It wouldn't just be a targeting the hospital, but the 300 civilian casualties and children inside as well. When we talk about the rules of war, the question comes, who enforces this? Whose responsibility is it to hold any group accountable, be it a nation state, be it a group that is acting on its own. There is a criminal system that can speak to accountability for individuals or groups, but holding a country responsible, holding a nation state responsible is, is a little different. So Sean, what is, what is the, the protocol? Especially, especially if the organization tasked with holding that accountability line isn't recognized by all actors. Yeah. So this is the rock upon which international law and especially the laws of war shatter. Nobody is there to do it. There's, the United Nations doesn't have a police force. There's no jail for countries. Uh, if you remember back in 2014 when um, you know Russia and Putin, they, they killed that Boeing 777 in the air, um, and they took the Crimea, a, a land grab, a violation of laws of war. Nothing happened to Putin. Nothing will probably happen to Israel. Um, and because there's no law enforcement of international law, um, people view it more actually like international courtesy. Sort of a gentleman's agreement. That's right. But war is not a gentlemanly art. 
We received this comment from the State Department, quote, Secretary of State Blinken spoke with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas yesterday evening to express profound condolences for the civilian lives lost in the explosion at the Al-Akhli Anglican Hospital in Gaza City. The secretary expressed continuing U.S. support for the Palestinian people, stressing that Hamas terrorists do not represent Palestinians or their legitimate aspirations for self-determination and equal measures of dignity, freedom, security, and justice, end quote. Joyce, Palestinians in Ramallah in the West Bank have been protesting Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. What issues do they have with how Abbas is handling the war? Oh, many issues, even before before the war, Jen. This is uh, a, a weak uh, a Palestinian leader uh, viewed by many uh, in the West Bank and Gaza as basically illegitimate. He has a, he hasn't called for uh, elections uh, now, and uh, and over uh, a decade, he's uh, he's eighty seven uh, years old. He's um, he's he doesn't have command of the security situation. In uh, in the West Bank and uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority, as we know, lost control of uh, of Gaza into uh, in 2007. So, so this is all a very bad situation for uh, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, the call from Blinken is trying to shore him up. Uh, there are plans, uh, perhaps just. Uh, ideas uh, that we've uh, reported that are being floated with the Egyptians uh, if the Israeli ground operation is successful and if they overthrow Hamas, how to bring back the Palestinian Authority to control uh, Gaza. But these, this is just, uh, this appears just, uh, you know, a pie in the sky at the moment, given how how weak Abbas is and how uh, uh, mistrusted the Palestinian Authority is within uh, uh, the West Bank. The World Health Organization released a statement following the Al-Akhli hospital attack. It reads in part, quote, the WHO calls for the immediate active protection of civilians in health care. Evacuation orders must be reversed. International humanitarian law must be abided by, which means health care must be actively protected and never targeted, end quote. Joyce, is there any sense that Israel will walk back the evacuation orders they've been sending to civilians in Gaza? And, uh, there isn't, and they uh, they actually called for evacuations, more evacuations uh, today from the Lebanon uh, border. Uh, so everything we're seeing is, is Israeli plans are still in place. The 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 hope from uh, the U.S. administration, Europeans, others, is they could delay a little bit the the ground invasion, so humanitarian aid can come in, hostages issues will be released, but with uh, with the Israeli security situation, that hasn't uh, changed as of this uh, morning on the issue of evacuations. Uh, Russia and the United Arab Emirates have called for an emergency UN meeting following the hospital attack. Sean, what happens next in terms of the UN's involvement in this war? I think the UN honestly is a secondary player. Um, I think Israel has, it feels that it has an overwhelming need to clear out Hamas once and for all. Um, they will have a ground invasion, in my opinion, because it's an urban, dense environment um, that has been booby-trapped by Hamas and that Hamas is dressed as civilians. We can expect a lot of collateral damage on all sides, and it may look like the Battle of Stalingrad. 
Um, I don't think we're going to hear much of relevance from the UN until after this occurs, and we don't know what the world's going to look like after this occurs. So what does that mean for the UN's role? You said they're a secondary player. What do they do in that secondary (laughs) position as you see it? Well, they can try to name and shame. Uh, They can try to use sort of what they call soft power of of legitimacy. Um, But let's not forget that the laws of armed conflict that they are supposed to sort of govern to some extent, you know, they have not been really relevant in the last 70 years of war. And I think we're really getting to a point where we have to ask ourselves, all of us, including the United Nations, do we keep the laws of armed conflict as they are, as ineffective as they are? Do we scrap them and say it was a noble attempt, but it's hubris to try to legislate battlefields? Or do we update them to reflect modern warfare? Because they are really set up to look at early 20th century warfare, not early 21st century warfare. So I would hope that the UN would look at the last question, but I am not optimistic that they will. Joyce, there's a lot more to talk about here, but in in just about 30 seconds, I want to make sure to update these numbers. The Gaza Health Ministry today says 3,478 people have been killed in Gaza and more than 12,000 wounded. Another 1,300 across Gaza are believed to be buried under rubble, alive or dead. Many of the dead are children. What are you watching for in, in the days ahead, especially as President Biden completes his visit? Well, we are watching and hoping for some kind of a humanitarian breakthrough that maybe a short truce comes uh, comes in order and, uh, you know, some respite for uh, for the people, the, the civilians that are trapped in, in this conflict. So this this is just devastating time uh, for the Middle East, for the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we still hope for a humanitarian breakthrough from uh, President Biden's visit. That's Joyce Karam, senior news editor at El Monitor, and Sean McFate. His book is The New Rules of War. He's also a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Today's producers were Maya Garg and Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial.